Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in African American Studies. I'm your host, Erica Easley Hauser. In this interview series, we feature a newly published work in African American Studies and spend some time speaking with the author. Today, I'm excited to feature an interview with Amrita Chakrabarty Myers, Associate Professor in the Department of History at Indiana University at Bloomington, to discuss her award winning book entitled Forging Freedom. Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston, published in 2011 by the University of North Carolina Press. In her work, she illuminates the complexities of freedom in the Antebellum South and the particular nuances in the city of Charleston. She extensively researches life for black women who negotiated their freedom in a variety of ways. Amrita extensively combs through several sources, such as Charleston laws, wills, and parish records, to examine themes such as black property ownership, black slaveholding, and interracial sex. Listen in to learn more about her fascinating study. Amrita, I want to welcome you to the New Books Network, and thank you for joining us today. Thank you so much for having me, Erica. It's really a pleasure. Yeah, I want to definitely get into your work, which I absolutely enjoyed. And um, But before we delve into your work, I figured you could just tell us a little bit about yourself and how you came to your study. Uh, well, uh, I am originally from Canada, born and raised, and I was fortunate enough as an undergraduate to do my bachelor's work at the University of Alberta in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And while I was there, I started taking these terrific classes from a woman who eventually became one of my mentors. Her name is Dr. Susan Smith, and she's a specialist in 20th century women's history uh, in the U.S., particularly race, health, and medicine. And she had just gotten her doctorate from the University of Wisconsin at Madison, and so she was a brand-new assistant professor back then, and she was a terrific teacher, really enthusiastic, really passionate. And I started taking U.S. history classes and women's history classes with her, and I took, um, particularly I took a class on American women. And that was really what sort of, sort of started my passion. I was actually going to go to law school. I, I was a junior at that point and really, <laughs> really committed to going to law school. I was a double major in history and classics. So really it was all history. It was ancient history and modern history. Um, you know, I love to read. I love to write. I love to do research. But I thought that all of those things would be really good, useful skills in terms of, you know, doing research for law school, you know, doing uh, casework, putting together briefs, filing motions, arguments, a lot of the skills that you learn as a history major translate really well to law school, and so that was Mm -hmm. was the goal, and the more classes I took with uh, Dr. Smith and others, the more I started to really question whether I wanted to go to law school, and she actually sat me down one day and said, are you sure you want to go to law school? Have you considered graduate work? (laughs) And I looked at her and I said, I I just, but what would I do with a graduate degree in history? <laughs> and she said, there are so many things. Where should we begin? And so I, I continued taking classes, and then I just realized that 
um, I decided I was going to take a master's degree. It was only, it was a one-year MA, and I thought, well, if I, I can defer law school, and if things go well with the MA, then great. I can think about doing a PhD at a later point. But if mm-hmm. they don't, if they don't go well, oh well, I'll still have a master's degree. I wouldn't have lost anything, and then I can still go to law school. Mm-hmm. But after I did the master's degree, I never looked back. I was just far too, I, it was just really evident to me that Black women's history, um, African American history, and old, you know, Southern history, all of that was just, I was so passionate about it and so excited by it because I wrote a master's thesis on, mm-hmm. on enslaved women and resistance in the plantation South for, for the MA. Mm-hmm. Uh, and by the time I finished doing all the primary research and, and putting that master's thesis together, I was I was hooked. It was done. I was never going to go to law school. I knew it at that point. And so I, I took a few years off and I worked and, and sort of did a few other things, but I always knew that I would come back. And so eventually I, um, I applied for graduate school and the rest, as they say, is history. It <laughs> is <joke>. history. Yeah. <laughs> well, certainly the, the legal professions lost and, and the history professions win. I'll, I'll certainly, <laughs> I'm sure most people would agree. Well, thank um, you. <laughs> especially, you know, I think about your work, too, in terms of, you know, when it was published, 2011, and sort of in the midst of a lot of anniversary celebrations, the sesquicentennial anniversary of the passing of the, you know, Emancipation Proclamation in, in the last uh, year. Year, uh, and celebrations about, you know, Civil War, certainly, and just kind of thinking about all of this attention now about sort of this post-Civil War moment. And your work obviously sheds light on an earlier moment, you know, the antebellum period. And I just thought, you know, with so many debates that are around this theme of freedom, um, and you certainly go into this in your introduction, some of the sort of historiographical debates about, you know, what to call uh, free persons of color, free African-Americans, and you talk about, you know, being virtually free. And certainly, you know, you also talk about other terms like quasi-free that other historians have used. Can you maybe talk a little bit about this for some of the listeners who might not be familiar with these debates about freedom in the antebellum South, uh, particularly for, for black women in Charleston? So can you talk a little bit about what that meant in terms of freedom for these women? Um, sure. Well, I mean, I guess let me answer two things. One, I think that the term freedom itself is just simply very slippery and difficult to define. Mm-hmm. I think that if often people think about freedom as the the end of slavery, but they don't necessarily, I mean, if, if we're talking about a 19th century African-American context, they think about, you know, freedom as being the end of slavery as opposed to perhaps the way I needed to come to think about it, in which, you know, many other historians, I think, are, are coming to think about it as well, which is that it's actually really the beginning uh, of, of something. And I also think that there's, um, at least on the part of many students, um, the assumption that freedom means the acquisition of legal papers, mm-hmm. that being free is something that someone else gives to you or bestows upon you um, in the act of a, of, a, of a piece of paper. And as I was doing my work, what I really came to understand is that, you know, first of all, there were there were lots of obstacles to acquiring one's freedom, but that the acquisition of 
you know, legal freedom, manumission, emancipation, whatever you'd like to call it, was not at all the end of anything. Um, it was really the beginning of a, of a long protracted fight, um, by black men and black women to actually acquire the rights and freedoms of citizenship. Because getting, you know, even for those who did acquire legal papers of manumission or emancipation, that didn't guarantee them anything. That, I mean, perhaps that meant that their bodies and their labor was no longer owned by one other, another particular person, but that mm-hmm. didn't mean that the door was open for them to be able to acquire property, go to school, uh, you know, purchase a home wherever they wanted, you know, be able to attend the church of their choice, marry the partner of their choice, raise their children as they saw fit. None of those things were written down and guaranteed to them simply because they were now, quote-unquote, manumitted or emancipated. They were going Mm -hmm. to have to, you know, negotiate and battle and fight every single day to actually make their physical daily freedom look like the way they had envisioned it and were were dreaming, uh, you know, of it to look like. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that, that, I think, is really, really important to understand that, you know, what does freedom really mean, that it's not necessarily end at the beginning, that it's not just about papers, that it's about building a life that reflects what freedom means to the individual. Um, and then there's a technicality in terms of, you know, the terms that you were mentioning, virtually free, de facto free, partially free, legally free. Um, there were many, many women and men in Charleston who lived on a day-to-day basis as if they were free people. They lived on their own, in their own homes, without the oversight of white owners or overseers. They worked at jobs for wages, which they kept. Um, you know, they wore the clothes that they chose. They raised their children. They, they married, went to church, you know, did everything like a free person would. But if you look at the record books on paper, they were not, they had never been legally manumitted or emancipated by their previous owners. Mm -hmm. Uh, So do you retroactively remove these people from the list of free people? Do you say, oh, they weren't free and I'm not going to talk about them um, simply because they didn't have that piece of paper? If they believed they were free, if they lived as if they were free. Um, And, and, you know, this is where I sort of talk about the fact that freedom is an experience and it's a performance. Mm. If, they, if they were experiencing freedom, living freedom, performing freedom, then who am I to retroactively as a historian say they were not free simply because they didn't have the paperwork? And that's why I choose to use terms like virtually free. You mm-hmm. can say that they were, you know, de facto free. They may not have had the legal papers, but they were treated by the community as if they were free people. White people treated them as free, black people treated them as free, and they themselves functioned and behaved as free people. Then, of course, there are those who are legally free. They have the paperwork, and they also are intermingling in in the black community of Charleston and, you know, living, working alongside both enslaved persons as well as um, white working class laborers and these de facto or virtually free people who I just mentioned. So I think that it's important to understand that this very concept of freedom is not only is it a big word and a big concept, but it's really slippery. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to define. It, it's constantly shifting and changing shape, and that you have to think about it constantly in terms of 
as, you know, an individual person's life, but you also have to look at social context, cultural and community context, you know, the way the laws keep changing, and, and you have to sort of consist, constantly be thinking about what does freedom mean at any given moment um, in a community to a person and, and sort of look at it from that perspective. So it's not as simple as I think many people would like for it to be. We would like for it to be more black and white and concrete, and it just isn't. Okay. Well, speaking of uh, the community uh, that you're talking about, uh, Charleston, you talk about, uh, you know, the city and really do a great job. I love sort of your writing about Charleston um, at the very beginning in the first chapter. And you call Charleston a city of contrast and you help the reader kind of imagine themselves being, you know, kind of walking through the city, uh, which I really loved. Can you just talk a little bit about sort of why Charleston? How did you choose Charleston and why did you, you know, describe it as, as a city of contrast? Um, and that's, that's a great question. And I just have to say, I, I love Charleston. I lived in South Carolina for a year while I was oh. doing all the on-site research. And um, any chance that I get to go back and visit is uh, it is really wonderful because uh, the people, the historians, the archivists, the teachers, just the local townspeople are really, really wonderful, helpful um, people. When I was thinking about doing the work for this project, I... One of the things, yeah, I was thinking, well, where, you know, where to look? My, my master's thesis, as I had mentioned earlier, had been on enslaved women and resistance. And I had been wondering about, you know, free black persons and sort of what their connections might be to enslaved persons um, and, you know, in, in rural areas, in urban areas. And, of course, you know, free blacks are a small population in the South, but within that, the majority of free blacks reside in urban areas, and not surprisingly because there's more opportunity socially, culturally, educationally, as well as, you know, professionally and economically. Um, within sort of the, the hierarchical order of the Southern system, there's more chances for them to, to gain upward social mobility in the cities. Um, and I started, I started looking at different Southern um, sort of urban areas and a lot of a lot of people had said, well, you know, New Orleans is a possibility. And I said, it is a possibility, but I also think that um, New Orleans is very unique. Uh-huh. Um, unique in a way that is wonderful and, you know, inspires a lot of terrific research and, you know, and has and will continue to inspire terrific research. But I wondered if New Orleans was perhaps so unique that it might not be able to provide a good litmus test for other urban areas. Mm-hmm. Um, and so then I started looking at, you know, I looked at, you know, Baltimore. Baltimore had a huge, um, you know, black population. But Baltimore is also a very unusual case in a sense because Maryland remains with the Union. It's mm-hmm. a bit of a, it's a bit of a, you know, is it Southern? Is it Northern? Is it slave? Is it free? How do we, how do we judge it? <laughs> Mm-hmm. And, and so and then I looked at Savannah, I looked at Charleston, and what I what I really thought was in, in really important about Charleston is that Charleston really reflects, I think, all of these cities that I I actually bring in all of these cities: Savannah, Petersburg, Virginia, Baltimore, Maryland, New Orleans, Louisiana. I bring I bring secondary data from all of those cities into my book in order to 
compare and contrast to black women's lives in Charleston, because what I think is is important is to be able to take the the detailed work on a city like Charleston and then compare it and use it as a litmus test and say, how does it compare to other urban urban areas in the slave south? Mm-hmm. Is it is it the same? Is it different? Where is it different? Where is it the same? Can we begin to actually make some broader arguments and, and factual statements about the lives of free blacks, particularly free black women, in the urban slave south? Okay. And and I thought that Charleston would provide a wonderful case for this because it's a it's not as large of a community as New Orleans or as Baltimore, but it's roughly you know it's big enough. It's around three thousand, you know, fluctuating a little more or a little less throughout the nineteenth century. So there's a large enough pool. Um, mm-hmm. I was able to uh, track black women in Charleston over three generations from 1790 to 1860. And the reason I was able to do that is because South Carolina has a wonderful archive of public records. And mm-hmm. so that was that was the second thing. I said, one, I would like to look at a place like Charleston because there's a big enough community. Two, it's, a, you know, it's not as unique as New Orleans, but, you know, it still has some of those unique qualities, particularly because of migration from the revolution in Saint-Domingue um, and mm-hmm. other things, but it's a more sort of American city than, than, than uh, you know, it can compare to places like Savannah and other port cities like like Petersburg and, and Baltimore. But then I looked at the archival records, and they're just so incredibly rich because South Carolina was very, very, um, almost obsessively, compulsively concerned with recording everything. Mm-hmm. Um, they weren't necessarily interested in recording the lives of black people, but their obsession with public records actually meant that black people showed up in the records in ways that they didn't always in other places. Mm-hmm. And there were a lot of other places where the records were destroyed um, through flooding, you know, hurricanes, uh, the Civil War. <laughs> mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. South Carolina has an amazing archival record of public records stretching all the way back to the colonial period. They were they were moved out of harm's way during the Civil War, and so many of the records were were very very well preserved. I mean. You know, granted, for someone like myself, it's still painfully obvious that there are so many gaps and so many things missing, but the ability to be able to look at manumission records, tax books, mortgage records, um, you know, city and, you know, like census materials, city directories, mm-hmm. uh, uh, you know, legal, legal records, uh, petitions to, you know, circuit courts and county courts. I mean, the amount, the sheer amount of public record keeping in South Carolina and in Charleston was absolutely phenomenal. And so mm-hmm. if you're patient and you're willing <laughs> to sift through um, thousands of wills, that was a big one, you know, legal, you know, civil court records, taxes, you know, tax documents, petitions mm-hmm. from the legislature. If you're willing to sift through them um, and, you know, there's no indexes, um, you just, you know, you just have to read and look for, you know, a lot of the time, person of color, free black, free Negro, you have to look for those terms. But if you're willing to do that, it's amazing what you can find. And so, you know, a really long answer to your short question, why Charleston, 
great, a great records and a good-sized community um, and a city that I think was one that could be used as a litmus test in a way that New Orleans maybe could not be. Okay. Well, relatedly, I just think about your work in terms of uh, just a lot of the other publications over the last, I'll say, decade about free uh, persons of color, free African-Americans in northern cities. There's been, I think, an enormous amount of work, you know, by scholars like Erica Armstrong, Leslie Harris, Craig Wilder, and others who've, you know, really examined and illuminated uh, free black life in the antebellum period in these northern cities. And I just was amazed at your work in terms of just the enormity of, you know, the free black population compared um, in a place like Charleston um, during the antebellum period. So can you kind of just talk about this? Because I think oftentimes I think about this in terms of trying to teach, you know, undergraduates about, uh, you know, the antebellum era. And I think oftentimes they're very surprised, you know, when they learn about a place like Charleston and the amount of free blacks there. So can maybe can you talk a little bit about um, kind of maybe things in terms of comparison of, you know, free blacks in the northern cities as opposed to a place like Charleston? So let me just make sure I understand. Do you mean compare numerically or compare in terms of what their basic overall life was like? More so comparatively in their in their life, um, you know, because you talk a lot about the laws, for instance, that impact, uh, you know, free blacks in Charleston, the law of 1820, law of 1832. And I'm just kind of just thinking about this in terms of, you know, for an undergraduate audience, for instance, using your work to make sure that they understand some of those differences of policies in a place like Charleston, as, as opposed to maybe New York or Boston or Philadelphia um, during the antebellum years. Sure. No, I just wanted to make sure I understood the question before I before I responded. So, I mean, I'm most familiar, you know, I'm very familiar with Erica Armstrong Dunbar's work on black women mm-hmm. in Philadelphia, Jane Dable and Leslie Harris and uh, Leslie Alexander's work on New York City. New York mm-hmm. has had some really, really good, good, good work done on it. Um, and what I what I you know tell my own students first of all many of my students are actually shocked that there were free blacks in the south mm-hmm. they were under the impression that free blacks lived in the north because northern mm-hmm. colonies and states abolished slavery and that every black person who lived in the south was enslaved mm-hmm. and they're actually shocked to realize that demographically free blacks in the United States were split almost equally down the middle between the North and the South, there was about 10% of the free blacks in the U.S. lived in the West. And the mm-hmm. other 90, the other 90% were split almost literally down the middle. Like it was like 46, 44 <laughs> oh, wow. between the North and the South. And they were really shocked by that. They're also mm-hmm. really shocked by the fact that they are under the assumption that because there is no longer legalized slavery in the North, mm-hmm. that that means that black people have better lives in the North. Mm-hmm. And what they're, what they're sort of dismayed to discover is that just because black people are not enslaved in the North doesn't actually necessarily mean, you know, that they are equal. Like that, because okay. many of our students um, accidentally um, put freedom and equality together. Uh-huh. And when we start breaking down, like when we start looking at, and actually I think one of the books that does this that I didn't mention that I think does this also really well in a northern context um, is Joanne Mellish's book, which uh-huh. is at gradual emancipation in the New England region in the 19th uh-huh. century. And, and sh- you know, it's really all of these books make it really clear that black people may not be enslaved, but white people don't want them around. <laughs> 
that mm-hmm. um, that they have a very difficult time finding employment. Um, even at the very bottom of the ladder, they're fighting with newly arrived immigrants like the Irish and others for jobs. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have a difficult time sending their um, children to school. They find themselves residentially and educationally segregated. There's all kinds of special curfews and taxes, um, and it's hard for them to move because if they move, they have to get permission. There's all kinds of laws in the North, and what do you know? Many of those same laws are existent in the South, in in places like Charleston, Savannah, etc., What's interesting is that even though, say, so so I'm going to take South Carolina, obviously, because that's that's what I know the best. Mm -hmm. In places like South Carolina, you have special taxes that only apply to black persons. Mm -hmm. Um, You have, you know, there's a lot of restrictions in terms of what they can do for work, um, you know, all of those sorts of things. But what's really interesting is that when you actually start to look at, you know, certain cities like New Orleans, like Charleston, like Baltimore, that even though these are urban areas within very, very committed slave states, mm-hmm. and even though they have all of these laws that are supposed to prevent black people from acquiring education, property, upward social mobility, most of the time, if times are peaceful, if there hasn't been a recent rebellion or uprising, um, If white people are content, you know, if there isn't a huge economic crisis, they basically turn a blind eye to the law and they pretty much permit free blacks and enslaved persons to work at jobs that they might not, you know, that they shouldn't be allowed to, you know, work at legally speaking Mm -hmm. or earn, like earn certain kinds of wages, buy certain kinds of property. Um, And so what's really, it's actually really interesting is that um, particularly for, I mean, if you look at, I hate to use the term elite free blacks because really they're elite compared to who? Maybe other free blacks, but not certainly not compared to whites. But Mm -hmm. if you look at a certain cross-section of free blacks who are, um, you know, have more money or more educated, et cetera, there's actually more opportunity for them in certain southern cities, you know, within, you know, a relative sort of confine. If you, if they're, they're actually able in places like New Orleans and Savannah and Charleston to practice certain professional occupations that, mm-hmm. they, would, that, that, they, that they wouldn't be permitted to practice in cities like New York or Boston. And in fact, Frederick Douglass talks about this in his autobiography, that he he was a skilled craftsman when he was living in the South as a slave, and he was able to practice that profession even as an enslaved person. But when he moved up north, he couldn't get work doing anything other than unskilled dock labor. Mm-hmm. Because free blacks were not permitted or welcome to work in professional or even skilled, what we would call craftsman occupations, carpentry, a wheelwright, stonemason, um, shoemaker, because those, those were skilled crafts and trades positions that were filled with white immigrant populations in particular who protested vehemently and violently if black mm-hmm. people tried to encroach on their professional territory and it led to labor strikes and violence and all kinds of unrest in northern cities. But in places like Charleston and New Orleans, you know, the majority of free blacks were actually 
although most of them were doing unskilled labor, there was opportunity for them to become seamstresses, carpenters, stone, like I said, wheelwrights, stone masons. In New Orleans, it was very unusual because you had people who, black, free blacks who were able to even become dentists, doctors, jewelers, architects. Um, these are, you know, very, very small numbers, mind you. I'm not saying that life was, you know, peaches and cream for free blacks in the South, but, you know, they had certain opportunities in certain cities that they mm-hmm. didn't have in the North, that the professions that they were practicing that they just wouldn't be able to because the North was actually much more rigid about mm-hmm. their color segregation and their and their race laws. The South actually, for, for all of its commitment to to slavery, was used to seeing black people laboring in all kinds of positions. The only professions that they regularly and and consistently kept black people out of was professional occupations like law and medicine, for example. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, those were things that were absolutely closed off to black people as much as, as they could manage. But in pretty much any other respect, if it was a... A Pizzino, even if it was, if it, regardless of what the work was, if it was benefiting white people, if, 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 if white clients were, you know, going to certain seamstresses, going to certain jewelers or architects or, you know, there would be opportunity for black people to um, continue, you know, practicing those professions and they wouldn't have been able to practice those professions in the North. There was, mm-hmm. there was you know, the immigration patterns were different. Um, the understandings of servitude and hierarchical labor were different. And, and white Southerners were perfectly comfortable having black people perform even skilled trades and occupations as long as it benefited them in terms of access to, you know, skilled, cheap labor, skilled, you know, well-made, but, you know, inexpensive products, et cetera. And so a lot of white immigrants just chose not to even come to places like Charleston because they couldn't break into those um, occupations or professions because skilled slaves and free blacks had a hold on those professions. And so those laborers go to the north where they know that they're going to be able to practice those professions without sort of encroachment from free blacks. Okay. That's interesting. I, it makes me think of also um, in terms of the things that I think your work really illuminates some of the nuances uh, that really I think oftentimes we assume. Um, and one of those things I think about in terms of your work uh, would be some of the assumptions I think that people make about uh, sexual uh, sexual violence um, that black women uh, who were enslaved certainly uh, experienced. And you talk about it in a, in a different way in terms of free black women uh, in some cases that you talk about uh, of women who negotiated uh, sex for freedom. And I, I just thought that was an interesting um, passage you talked about um, earlier in the book around page 59. Uh, so I wanted just to kind of have you maybe talk a little bit about that, um, about women who negotiated for freedom in that way. Well, it's a tricky subject. <laughs> uh, it's a very, very tricky subject. And uh, one of the things that I I talk about, like, and I make very, very clear is that Yes, there are 
that black men and black women, there are certain pathways or avenues to freedom that both genders are able to access, self-purchase, for example, but Mm -hmm. that there are certain avenues that are more likely to be open to men and other avenues that are more likely to be open to women. That doesn't mean that these are necessarily good avenues or avenues Mm -hmm. that made people happy even. I don't, you know, we certainly don't know how people felt about these things, but, um, if you look at the numbers, it's very, you can see that even though black women did, uh, you know, work, you know, for wages and use those wages to purchase their freedom, more black men were able to do that because more, there were more free black men who had specialized skills that they were able to trade for, um, you know, better paying jobs, relatively speaking, than black women were able to. And so fewer black women are able to, use their wages to purchase their freedom or the freedom of their children because they, you know, they work, they have fewer occupational choices and those occupations pay less money. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, there's an avenue to freedom that there that exists for certain black women that does not exist for black men or not certainly not in as great a number and that's um, establishing you know, sexual relationships, intimate relationships with, uh, you know, men of power and authority. Mm-hmm. Now, this, you know, one of the things I say is that we have to be really clear that there were, you know, these, you know, even this avenue to freedom, even if a woman decides to acquiesce to such a relationship or, you know, engage in a relationship, we can never forget the coercive circumstances, right, that we're living in this, this is a slave south, This is, um, even if, you know, most of many of these women are enslaved and they are engaging in these relationships with a long-term view to hopefully seeing these relationships be turned into freedom, um, if not for themselves, then for their children, Mm -hmm. Um, educational opportunities, property, etc. But there's never any guarantees, and you have to consider the fact, like I always tell my students, again, you know, is this really a free choice a woman makes? The only way to know that is if she, if would she have made the same choice to have that sexual relationship with that man if they, if, if, if she was a free person living in a free society, mm-hmm. right? And so we can never forget sort of the very coercive circumstances. There are relationships that are, completely violent and completely abusive. What I try to outline in the book is that not that the sexual relationships occur on a very, very long spectrum and that you have relationships that are very, very violent and abusive and non-consensual at one end. You have others that are more, I always am very careful, more consensual, less coercive, mm-hmm. um, you know, more part, more inclined to look like a partnership on the other end with a whole lot of, you know, sort of different kinds of relationships in between. You might have, you have everything from, you know, one-time, you know, rates to rates that happen over multiple years to women who perhaps started out in a non-consensual relationship, but then they acquiesce for, for a very variety of reasons. Mm-hmm. But there's never any guarantee for these women who are involved in these relationships, like I outlined in the book. It's a very, very fine line that they walk because they have to, having a one-night relationship with a man isn't going to get them anything. 
Mm-hmm. Um, even if they have a lengthy relationship with a man, there's no guarantee that that's going to result in freedom or or education or property for themselves and their children. The best, right, what I've noticed in terms of the research is that the women who stood to gain the most were the ones mm-hmm. who had long-term relationships with powerful men and that and relationships that resulted in the birth of children. Mm-hmm. And that actually it was not the women themselves who really acquired much in the way of education or wealth or property, but that it's their children and grandchildren who will be legally manumitted by the father slash partner in question, who will be given, who will be trained at a skill, sent to school to get an education, and who will be given property by their fathers both before and after their death in wills. Mm if the women acquire the prop, uh, property as well, if you look, when you read the wills, you see that the women always acquire less property than the mm-hmm. children, and that, and that even if the women acquire property, that the women are still illiterate and signing documents with an X, but those children that they've had with that man are able to sign their names, and it, and it indicates that they've had an education of some kind. Mm-hmm. And so yeah. the greater opportunity is not for the woman who makes these compromises or who makes these, you know, very strategic sort of engages in these strategic tactics of negotiation. Um, and, and there's just never any guarantee a man could lose interest. A man could start having a relationship with somebody else. A man could sell you. He could sell the children. Like there was no... There was no way of knowing that that's why these women had to really walk a fine line every day because they had to, if they chose to engage in these relationships, they always, there was always that realization, there was always that understanding in the back of their minds that there were no guarantees, his feelings good for her could change at any moment. And even even if his feelings didn't change, he might die unexpectedly, he might not leave mm-hmm. them anything in his will. Even if he did, the state or other people um, might come after them to try and take what they had away from them, you know, white family members, et cetera. There were simply no guarantees. It was a very, very dangerous game that they were playing. And mm-hmm. it's not, it's, I mean, it's very possible that some of these women had real feelings of affection for the men that they were with. We have no way of knowing if they did or didn't. Yeah. They didn't leave the kinds of records that would allow us to say for sure they, oh, she loved him or she hated him. We don't know. We can right. only, we can only say, well, given that they were together for 40 years, both before and after, you know, the woman was, you know, freed and manumitted or the children were freed, it suggests that, that, that there was some level of affection between uh-huh. the two because she didn't leave. Right. But that's, you know, that's a very, very careful, you know, spe- sort of, you know, guarded sort of conclusion or speculation because unless you find letters or, or diaries or, you know, firsthand papers written by these women, there's no way of knowing did they willingly engage, were they always happy, did they want to stay, did they want to leave, did they love the guy, did they hate the guy. There's just no way of knowing. One can only say, well, after 30 years or 40 years or 50 years, it's, it's likely that there was some level of affection. And if the, if the relationship didn't begin consensually, it's very possible that it evolved into that. Um, mm-hmm. 
but what what, what we can say is that that's an option that didn't necessarily present itself to enslaved men, right? Um, um, There may well have been enslaved men who had relationships with white women and used those to better their circumstances. Um, Certainly something that we don't know as much about, I think, but I, I, I think that we can, that's why I say that there are certain avenues to freedom that are more likely um, to be available to black men, like self-purchase, because of skill sets and wages. And there are other things like, you know, sexual tactics of negotiation that are more available to black women. But those are, right, they're loaded, um, complicated, always sort of dicey kinds of mm. avenues to freedom. Yeah. Well, you do a wonderful job, I think, teasing out so many of the questions you just raised, uh, especially in your last part of your book, um, you know, these sort of case studies that you present on Cecile Cogdell and Sarah Sanders uh, and Margaret uh, Benthingall, uh, which I think were really great, you know, to kind of tease out many of the questions that you set forth um, in the earlier uh, sections of your book. Uh, But I wanted to sort of pose a different question, uh, sort of a final question to wrap up our interview and just have us uh, maybe learn a little bit about some of the current research that you're doing, uh, any new projects that you're working on that are either related or perhaps a, a divergent path uh, from your from your first book? Well, actually, the, the new book project that I'm working on is very much related to those case studies um, at the end of the book. I, okay. I love to tell stories. I mean, I really, really enjoy researching, you know, people and their lives and, and talking about families and talking about, um, you know, just, you know, to me, history really is, right, people's personal stories. And I really enjoyed those last two chapters um, in the book where I was able to talk about Cecile and Sarah, Margaret, Barbara, Hagar, all of these women who I sort of feel like I really came to know personally after, mm-hmm. um, you know, spending so much time with their family records and public documents. I, um, I was thinking to myself after I finished the book and finished writing those particular chapter case studies, that I would love to do something similar to those, you know, to those chapter-length studies on a on a larger book sort of length project, looking at you know one family or one set of relationships in great detail over, you know, over time, like I did with those chapters, but you know, expanding it out to a larger study. And I started thinking more, and as I was thinking a lot, I was thinking about you know these tactics of negotiation sex and sexual compromise, um, how local people, white and black, reacted to these interracial relationships, how, how the children experienced, you know, growing up in these particular homes, what were these women thinking, how much choice did they actually have, um, how did, you know, how did the nation, we have a, we have still a national narrative um, where the majority of people don't really want to acknowledge that interracial sex was as prevalent as it was. Mm-hmm. You know, there, there's sort of this, um, how do I put it, there's this idea that people, um, particularly just sort of the average everyday person likes to sort of float about, oh, you know, there was the Thomas Jefferson and, you know, there was like, a, you know, some of these, you know, planters who were having interracial sex or whatever, or it was mm-hmm. limited to places like New Orleans, you know, with with its history of concubinage and passage, you know, et cetera. But 
nobody nobody really wants to acknowledge how prevalent interracial sex was, and Southerners certainly don't, you know, still like to talk about it. I mean, the the legal system, the way it was set up in the 18th and 19th centuries, oh, you know, amalgamation was outlawed, it wasn't mm-hmm. happening, nobody participated in it, and if they did participate in it, they were from the lowest strata of white society. They were shunned from the rest of the community. They they had to live in isolation and shame with their black partners for transgressing the color line. So there's this, you know, sort of narrative about how the sex isn't happening, but if it's happening, it's happening only amongst, you know, poor, isolated people who nobody wants to really hang out with or talk to. And I thought to myself, hmm, no, I mean, there's clearly something there given the work that I uncovered in Charleston. But even there, people are like, oh, but that's Charleston. It's so much <laughs> like New Orleans. It's a really unusual city. You can't, you know, this wasn't happening everywhere. And I thought to myself, I just can't see that being the case. And I kept reading about Richard Mentor Johnson, who was, um, he was a plantation owner, slaveholder, lawyer, and a politician, a lifelong career politician from the state of Kentucky. Mm-hmm. And he served in the, in the state legislature as well as in Congress, federal Congress, as a, you know, in the House of Representatives, as well as in the Senate. And he eventually rose to become vice president of the United States in 1837 mm-hmm. under Martin Van Buren. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that he just kind of shows up in these weird little, like, one little paragraph in a survey book or a footnote in another book um, talking about how Johnson had many, many black concubines and mistresses and that mm-hmm. apparently never he had never married a white woman, but he, he had all these black female lovers. Mm-hmm. And I thought to myself, hmm, I, I, I wonder if anybody's actually done any work on this. And there hasn't actually been a political biography written about Johnson since 1932. Huh. Um, so that's the last time a political bio was done. But there actually hasn't been a monograph-length study done on Johnson and his family um, mm-hmm. ever. There's been um, some articles that have been written but there hasn't really been an in-depth study of Johnson and, you know, his, his family at large. And from, so what I, from what I have found out, I, um, I thought I would do a little more research and see what was there because I'm less interested in, in Richard Johnson's political career and more interested in actually, obviously, as a historian of black women, I'm more interested in the women that he had these relationships with and the children. And like I said, how did the local community react? How did Washington, D.C. react? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, how did the nation respond to having this man as their vice president? So I started doing some digging and so far, I've uncovered that it looks like he had three different relationships with mm. different black women over the course of his life. He didn't appear to, he never married a white woman. He didn't appear to have any relationships with white women. Um, the second relationship, um, he was with that particular woman, Julia Chin, for over 20 years, and they had two daughters together. And then she passes away in a cholera epidemic. And then he actually has a third and final relationship with another um, black woman named Parthenia. 
and appear, and it looks like he has two more children with her, and this is like really in the sunset years of his life, um, mm-hmm. a son and a daughter. So we have two daughters with Julia, a son and a daughter with Parthenia. And, um, you know, there's so many questions, like how did he meet Julia? Was she enslaved? Um, you know, was this a, did she engage in this relationship, you know, willingly? Mm-hmm. Uh, but it's really interesting, right, because they're, they lived together for over 20 years. He's gone to D.C. most of the time on, you know, for political work. She's kind of back home on the plantation helping to oversee things and run things with, um, you know, the staff. She is in charge of the household slave labor force. Um, she's raising her two daughters there who are being educated. Um, you know, they grow up, both of the the daughters, Imogene and Adeline, grow up to be very, you know, well-educated, well-to-do young women. They're, you know, Richard gives them a lot of property. Um, you know, makes, he helps to arrange good marriages for them with white men, mm-hmm. you know, for example. And so there's, um, it's, and it, what's interesting is that on the local level, at least, there doesn't seem to be overt hostility or violence directed towards Julia or Richard or their children, um, because what's different about his relationship with Julia and the kids than Thomas Jefferson and Sally Hemings, for example, is, you know, Johnson never had a white wife. He didn't hide Julia out back in a cabin. He lived uh-huh. with her openly in his home, and he openly referred to her as his wife. And he acknowledged, publicly acknowledged their two daughters as his children. Uh-huh. And so he's, what's different is not that he's having this relationship, because we know that so many white men are engaged in similar relationships. What's different is that he's not hiding it. He's right. very public about it. He's very open about it. Like I said, calling her his wife, referring to the two girls as his daughters, having them educated, giving them property, uh, you know, make sure, you know, they, had, they get married to, you know, relatively prosperous white local men who know that they are, you know, marrying um, women, women of color. And mm-hmm. so it's, um, it's really, you know, I have all of these questions about, so how does the nation respond? How does D.C. respond? How do the locals respond? Why is this different or is it different? What's Julia's life like? What are these daughters' lives like? Um, and then even more so about the third woman, Parthine, and her two children, who I just don't know that much about yet because I just basically found sort of information that proves that they even existed late last mm-hmm. summer. And so mm-hmm. my, my goal for this next leg of research is to start really digging into finding out, you know, Parthenia, the name of these two children that Parthenia had, what happened to them, where, you know, where did they go, were they educated, mm-hmm. what were their lives like, and, and hopefully starting to build, sort of not only build um, a better understanding of what their lives were like, but hopefully be able to trace, you know, their families. Wow. So I'm, Interesting. So I'm really, I'm really excited because it really flows directly out of the work that I was doing on Charleston with these interracial, interracial relationships and, mm-hmm. you know, these ideas of negotiation and compromise and power. And um, I, I actually, what I had done is I, I, I wrote the book and then I actually started teaching a class at Indiana University where I work on um, called Sex, Lies, and Diaries, Untold, mm-hmm. Southern, untold Southern Stories. Mm-hmm. And basically the whole class is about interracial sexual relationships in the Old South, uh, but not just black-white sexual relationships. Um, my students look at, they read primary and secondary materials, and they look at 
relationships between Native Americans um, mm-hmm. and whites, between blacks and whites, between Native Americans and blacks, between slaves and free people, you know, mm-hmm. uh, free people and, and, you know, so all different permeations, you know, white women mm-hmm. with black men, white women right. with Native men, like things that we don't normally think about. Because right. normally when you say interracial sex, Old South, the default setting is white men, enslaved women, rape. Right, right. So what exactly. happens when you look at rape relationships alongside less coercive relationships? What is one? What about you know actual legal marriages? What what happens when you bring Native Americans into the picture and look at those relationships? So I started teaching this class on interracial sex, and the more I taught, you know, the, I started teaching that class, the more interested I became in thinking about. Um, doing a larger case study on a family, you know, like the Bettingalls or or like the, um, the Sanders Cogdell clan, and so I. That's why I thought to myself, gosh, you know, when I started reading about Richard, I thought someone really needs to work on Richard, and the and these three, you know, three women. I don't even know the name of the the first woman that he mm-hmm. was with. I said someone really needs to look at Richard and his and his you know black female you know partners. And one of my colleagues looked at me and said, well, why don't you do it? <laughs> and I sort of thought yeah. to myself, huh? Well, you know, I guess, I guess, I, I guess, I sort of could, couldn't I? And <laughs> the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, gosh, it really does sort of speak to my interests and come really right out of my own work on Charleston and the class I'm teaching and the things I'm interested in about sex and power and race and rights and negotiation mm-hmm. and privilege and compromise and all of these sorts of things. Like those questions haven't changed. So I've gone from. Um, the urban, you know, urban eastern seaboard south to the rural frontier mid-south mm-hmm. or right. upper south, however you want to sort of um, picture Kentucky. But, <laughs> you know, the, the time period is the same and the questions are the same. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so I'm really, that's, that's where I'm headed. That's where I'm wow. Well, that that sounds fascinating. I certainly look forward to reading about that, the story of, of Richard Johnson. Um, and I just want to thank you for your time today talking about your first book, uh, Forging Freedom, Black Women, and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston. Thank you so much, Emrita, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you, Erica. It's been my pleasure. Thanks. You've just been listening to New Books in African American Studies, and we've been speaking with Emrita Chakrabarty Myers, author of Forging Freedom, Black Women and the Pursuit of Liberty in Antebellum Charleston, published in 2011 by the University of North Carolina Press. For more information about this podcast series, you can find us on the web at newbooksnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook to leave questions or suggestions about new books that you'd like to hear on this program. You can also check out our newly launched New Books Network Daily at nbndaily.com and on Facebook, which includes links to reviews of other interviews about books and a variety of academic fields and categories. I'm Erica Easley-Hauser, and thanks for joining us.